Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I am proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team. On School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is part of the Department of Pediatrics. Cooper University Healthcare, located in Voorhees, New Jersey. I am the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications. The first one is called The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, www.shutdownlearner.com. And that site's loaded with blogs and a whole host of other tidbits and videos and things. Um, the books are available on Amazon and Barnes and & Nobles, and through Barnes & Nobles. Um, it's the goal of this show that we talk in down-to-earth, plain language for parents to help them understand their child better. And I, I'm really happy to have Dr. Ellen Bratton on for the second part of It's a two-part interview, and she certainly speaks in plain language. Dr. Ellen Bratton is the director of the Learning and Emotional Assessment Program called LEAP at Massachusetts General Hospital and assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School. She is the co-author of Straight Talk About Psychological Testing for Kids, and she lives with her family in Boston. Dr. Bratton's new book is called Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up, uh, and it's how to help your child overcome slow processing speed and succeed in a fast-paced world. So, Ellen, welcome again. Thank you. It's great to have you aboard for part two. In part one, you enlightened us about the role of processing speed, and it's very, you know, very. It's a complicated topic, but I think you covered a, a whole host. You know, you covered a lot. You covered a broad range, and, and, and I'm really looking forward to talking about the what to dos. But before we get into that, one question I had left over from that interview was the notion of cognitive tempo, which is something that comes up a lot as a term. Is that, are, they, are they the same or is there something different? Are they basically the same idea? I, I think, you know, my understanding is it's basically the same idea, but again, we're kind of talking about two things that are sort of poorly defined. Like we can't just mm-hmm. point to one specific thing. But I kind of think of, you know, when people use the term cognitive or sluggish cognitive tempo, 
I kind of think of it as the same sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, and, and the biology, I would think, would be very similar, um, where, you know, it, in terms of how it, our brain processes information. And, again, we don't have a perfect idea about how that works, but we do have some thoughts about how that happens. Again, before we move into um, the realm of, of intervention and, and accommodation, um, in both of your books, you talk about that this comes up a lot in my world, I'm sure yours, the differences between, in a sense, public school testing, special education testing, and private testing. Um, can you comment a, briefly on those, the, the differences, the strength, a little bit of the strengths and weaknesses of each? Yes. Well, I, I think that the, the major difference between the two is that the goal of educational testing at school is to figure out how to best educate that child within the context of the school, you know, within what the school has to provide, basically. Whereas a private evaluation, the goal is really to find an appropriate, if it is an appropriate, is appropriate, an appropriate diagnosis that will direct treatment. And so the, the goals are very different. So a lot of times parents will say to me, well, you know, my school didn't tell me. I had testing at the school. They didn't tell me my child had dyslexia. They didn't tell me he had ADHD. Well, that's really not the school's job to do. It's the school's job to look at, okay, this is the testing that was done. Here's how we can best educate that child. And by best educate that child, it doesn't mean that they need to provide the child with a Cadillac. It means that they have to provide them with a car that drives. So um, whereas private testing, what you're really doing is trying to find the ultimate way. You know, the recommendations that you and I make are usually ones that really are, you know, I'll tell parents this, this is the ultimate list of recommendations. The school doesn't have to do all of them. And we need to pick and choose which ones we're going to argue for first. Another positive, though, about school testing is that it's free. And you can get it done very quickly depending on your your state's uh, laws. Within, they have to do with it within 30 days, within a certain amount of 45 days, and a certain amount of time um, after you request it. Whereas private evaluations can take you, depending on where you live, six months, a year. They're costly. They're not always covered by insurance. So I think you know cost and then the whole um, idea of what the testing is supposed to provide, I think, are the two biggest differences. And they both have their places. You know, if you have a child who is just having a little bit of struggle in school and needs just some help in math, the school evaluation can be more than um, adequate. So I think, it's, yeah. I think when getting a label is important, I think it's more important to get a private evaluation when really just trying to figure out how do I make my child more successful in school and you feel confident that the school district can do that well, then, then school testing is, is more than adequate. And, and school testing also involves the issue, which I use as a contrast with parents, the issue of eligibility. You know, the, uh, yeah. a, primary, a primary question for schools is is this child eligible or not for special education? Whereas that's not my question. My question is, does this child have a problem? And yes. what is the nature of the problem? And what do we do about it? That kind of thing. So I think that that's yes. a fundamentally different question between the two as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that, I think that's what I was trying to say, too. I should have used the word eligibility, but that, that they're trying to, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's but, but, not you know, our... But you're right, too, that they're trying to program for, the, that they're trying to decide in the context of the school and, and what the school services yeah. are, what, what is it that we can do for this child, which are, they're very, they are different questions. I also think on the yeah. private side, 
you, you effectively have, you know, a, a consultant available to you that, that can talk in plain language that sometimes the schools, I think, have a harder time doing. Thank you. And in, 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 um, in our state and in, in a, a lot of states, you know, in Massachusetts, it, it can oftentimes be five different people who do yeah. parts of the evaluation. In some ways that's good, but it, I find for yeah. parents that can be very hard because there's not one person who says, this is what it all means. So, you know, they might hear from the occupational therapist, this is my little piece. And so they see a piece of the elephant, but they never really put it all together. And that's yeah. where one, having a one person do the evaluation can be very helpful, I think. Yeah, we have the same in New Jersey, and I sometimes think that, again, it's not a bad or good issue, but, it's, but these, are, these are important issues for parents. You know, I think that sometimes parents will find it very intimidating, you know, even ones that are pretty knowledgeable about, you know, testing special education. They go into these meetings, and they can feel intimidated by the number of people around the table. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in one on, with, with an individual examiner, it's, it's not, you know, this one person is talking to you about, about the testing. It's a, it is a different experience. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. Moving, moving on to um, treatment and accommodations, I love, you know, again, this book, uh, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up, Dr. Bratton's book is, is uh, you know, loaded with lots of great information and on page 36, you, you talk about the three A's of processing speed, which I think is at the core of what might be called treatment. Would you elaborate on that, please? Yes. So, so the three A's are to accept, accommodate, and advocate. And so I think all three of them together have their place because, we, like I said uh, earlier, we don't have a cure for this. So in terms of accepting, I think what we were just talking about is the key to starting to accept, which is to get more information about what your child's learning profile is like so that you can better understand who they are as a person. And, and you know, we were talking about that in, in the earlier segment, that understanding that this is my child's speed is the first way of, of you know, it's acceptance, but it's also almost – accepting them almost you have half of the battle won in a way because you're, you're like, okay, I'm not going to be able to change a lot of this. And so that sort of gets you into the idea of accommodating, which is the second A of processing speed, which is, okay, I've accepted this. My child is never going to be the fastest kid in the classroom. So how do I accommodate his environment to better meet his needs? So it can be accommodations like extra time on tests or allowing more time in the morning to get things done or teaching them how to be more efficient. We were talking about that before, too. What's the most efficient way of approaching different kinds of tasks and helping them overlearn those sorts of things? And, um, and then third, uh, being able to advocate for oneself is really important. And I think that because these kids, I just find are very often misunderstood by their own parents and by their teachers and school administrators because they don't look like they're paying attention or because they're not getting the work done, it, the assumption is you didn't do the work, you didn't care to get it done, or you didn't work hard enough, that they have to learn to, to advocate for themselves. They have to learn uh, to uh, be able to articulate what it is that they need from the environment and be able to know that this is going to take me too long or this is going to, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to get this done in time. How can we do this in a way that's going to 
make it better for me. And um, so those three things together, and, and when a child's younger, I think the parent has to become the advocate for the child. But the goal is to make the child more successful as they go on by advocating for themselves. And, um, you know, I, this is funny. I, I was talking in the other, your other segment about my son, who's now 20, and he was working uh, just he – was, he was taking a summer school class. He was taking some classes over uh, the summer and had said – he was working with an academic coach, and she had wanted him to take two classes uh, for this four-week session. He said, no, I, actually, I think it was a three-week session. He said, no, I really couldn't. And she's like, no, no, you can. And for the first time, I really listened to him because he said, I cannot do two mm-hmm. – I can't do six credits yeah. of college in three weeks. And it right. was funny because – he wound up getting an A on the one class that he took, and would not, you know, would not have done that had he, had I sort of forced him to sort of, you know, take two classes. So Boy, that's it, such it, a such a great point. I want to punctuate it. You know, in a sense, really listening to the child and or the grown child's, uh, you know, own own understanding of what they what he or she needs and what their own intuitive understanding is is, is really important. Yeah, it really is. And here, you know, I like I said, I, I I'm in this field, and it's still hard. So, you yeah. know, I can only imagine how hard it is for a parent who doesn't see this every day. Um, you know, in in other kids. So, what are some signs of acceptance? You use that. You said something like, "I know that my child is not always going to be the fast." I mean, are there other indicators that a parent is kind of starting to show acceptance? Um. That's a good question. I think, I think um, within a family, there usually is. There, oh, that's a good question. I, I find that there's oftentimes one parent who is more accepting than the other, and so oftentimes, this isn't going to quite answer your question. But what I oftentimes see is there's one parent who kind of understands or makes accommodations mm-hmm. naturally for a child. Sometimes too much and there's a parent who is just oftentimes oftentimes the father but not always who is saying i you know i don't i just think he's lazy he's just not trying enough and i think that sometimes in acceptance it's it's about sort of letting go that your child's going to be exactly who you want them to be and I think every parent has to do that with every child, regardless. I think with these kids, or even you know, all kids with disabilities, parents have to confront that earlier than they do with other kids who don't have bumps in the road like this. And so I think sometimes acceptance sort of lets, means letting go of the child you wish you had and enjoying the child you do have. Right. And I also think that sometimes with, in some parents, parents accepting means accepting something in yourself because I sometimes the parent who has the most trouble accepting is the one who sees himself in that child and so I think being you know sort of embracing who you are also helps you accept your child and that sounds sort of trite but I think it's it's true yeah yeah no I think that that's that could be showing a, a kind of deep level of acceptance where where you're you know, able to look at your own self in relation to the child. What, what about these brain training programs? I'm not talking about anyone specifically, but I would think that people seem to gravitate toward them. I have parents contacting me now, well, should I spend a lot of money on this brain training program? I, I haven't known yet there to be the fix 
for this kind of thing. So I'm a little skeptical still about them, but what's your sense of it? I, I, I feel exactly the same way. The research just isn't there for, for this. And it's a lot of, I just feel like a child would be, the time would be better spent until we really know this works. The t- their time would be better spent doing other kinds of things, like, for instance, tutoring that helps them become more efficient at study skills and those sorts of things. Because every moment is precious with these kids. So giving them, you know, putting them in front of a computer or doing some kind of a cognitive program that's supposed to speed them up or supposed to help them in a certain thing, certain way, that's taking an hour away from something else. And it oftentimes takes these kids longer than average to get their homework done. And so we don't want to be wasting time on things that we don't know are going to work well. Right, right. And what's your, and what's, what's your view of, of you know, the, the, when you talk about homework or, you know, the chi- this, these kids typically don't finish their, their this work in school, you know, so then the teacher, in, in a, you know, kind of well-intended, well, he can finish it at home. Do you find that to be a reasonable accommodation? I, mean, I, I have a mixed mind about it myself. What's your sense oh. of it? I am too. I mean, because what you're doing is you're just, the child never feels like he's caught up. So he didn't finish it in school and then now has to, on top of his homework, finish what he was supposed to do in school. I I think that's somewhat an individualized kind of thing, but for most kids... I feel like the teacher should be able to, and now, of course, you know, I, I realize teachers are completely overwhelmed you know, and yeah. have a lot of yeah. kids to have to keep track of, but ideally, I feel like they should be able to say, you know what, you did enough to get this concept. You have yeah. this concept down, now let's move on to something else. As opposed to, um, it, it's hard though, because these are kids who need to overlearn something, yeah. but they don't need busy work. And that's the hard, it's very hard to find that, that zone, you know, that, that perfect yeah. zone where they've overlearned something, but they don't feel overwhelmed by the busy work of it. So, it, 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 um, and, it and it could also be a thing that they could, it, it may not even be a learning issue, but it could also, I mean, a, a, a something that they're learning, but let's just say it's a, a, a project or a drawing or something. I've seen kids when I, you know, I'm sure you ask them to make drawings, you know, and like if you ask them to draw a picture of a house, they're adding like one shingle after another, after another, after another. <laughs> And you might say to the child, you know, would you like to finish this at home? Maybe, maybe there's a little more partnering that can go that's on right. between that's you and the child, you know? Yes, and that, that's kind of a – that's why I said some of these things have to be individual because that's yeah. the sort of thing that if they're really into it, you know, a child may really right. want to spend want 10 to hours do it on a particular home. project. Right, I would and, like and to finish this at home, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and whereas other things where it's, you know, 50 math problems and they really can only get through 20 of them um, that's a different sort of issue so that's why it kind of has to be individualized you know the the other thing this is just an example of something um, that in terms of homework these are not the kinds of kids who need to learn five different ways of doing long division for example so if the the goal of the like for instance the teacher is trying to to help them find different ways of understanding how to do long division, and they've got to do five different ways, that's not the best use of their time. They're much better off learning one way. Again, that, right. that word that you used before, efficiency, what is the most efficient way to do long division? And learn that, learn it well, and move on. And a lot of our curriculum these days is, is about let's figure out how we could do it. Sometimes it's not even 
did we find the right answer, but did you figure out how it could be done? And these, that's not the best kind of learning approach for these kids in the early grades particular. You know, there's time for that later, but if we really want them to know how to add and subtract fractions, teach them how to do that one way and don't yeah. make them draw it. And, do you know what I'm saying? So that's, sure. those are the sorts of extra kinds of work that they don't need to do if the goal is to learn how to do a certain math concept, for example. Right. So, so, so in a sense, my takeaway point on this is individualize. If you're a teacher, you have to almost go, you know, task by task. You know, is this a task that the child should be doing at home, can be doing at home? Maybe there's a way of partnering with the kid and saying, would you like to do it at home? <laughs> Not that I'm right, putting the right. kid in charge, but there are probably situations where the kid, yeah, I would really like to finish it at home. That would be great. So, that, you know, it might be a sense of pride tied into it so that they want to, but then maybe with the, if you go look at the math problems, all right, he's got 20 done and the average was 50, all right, I'm going to let it go. That, as a teacher, I think that's what your point is. Exactly, and I, you know, it takes a skilled teacher, and skilled teachers yeah. do this naturally, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they accommodate it, naturally, don't they? Yeah, they really do. Yeah, they, they really naturally. do. I mean, really good teachers don't even need our reports, to be honest. I, I right. feel like, you know, in our recommendations, because they sort of know intuitively. That's so but, true. Boy, yeah, so but that I think really that, you know, um, that de-emphasizing sort of the busy work while trying to adjust where that, you know, where it is that they, all right, they've learned this concept and now we move on, it's a hard thing to do. And you, you also brought up something else is about um, it, the, the other side of, of adjusting this is, is how a child feels about himself. So some kids don't want the work adjusted. Some kids want to do all 50 because they don't want to mm-hmm. feel different. Yeah. Most of them don't, but some of them do. And so a teacher has to balance that too and to figure out how to get the child sort of past that or to help them feel like they've mastered it similarly to other kids in the class. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, all a lot of these accommodations, I've written blogs about this where it's like, you know, giving the ADHD kid extra time. Well, it's like, thanks a lot, Mom. I don't want the extra time, <laughs> exactly. you know, great. Or, you know, or, or he, you know, he, you know, you know, the parents has written, has gotten an accommodation where it's, okay, he can only finish half of the work. Well, the child doesn't want that either necessarily, as you're pointing out, because they might feel like they're, they're being held to a different standard or they may be singled out. I mean, I think that the rule number one above all is, to, you know, keeping the kids safe, helping the kids save face so they don't feel any sense of embarrassment, right? Yes, because that creates a whole other issue. Then, then we're in the emotional realm of, you know, yeah. low self-esteem, anxiety, getting down about himself, and, and that, that can create a problem when we're really trying to fix a problem. So before we run out of time, what, give me, if you could, maybe top five accommodation strategies at, in school and then maybe a few at home and then that will, will you know, those will, or things that, you know, things that, you know, things that we can do, things that parents, you know, give us the top, the top Dr. Bratton strategies. Oh. Oh, top five. Okay, well, well, the first one really has to be about amp- having ample time, having enough time. Yeah. And particularly, I know you, know you mentioned that you know, kids would, sometimes kids don't want the extra time. As they grow older, they generally do. So yeah. extra time on tests. I think keeping um, 
stuff down to a minimum, so the amount of stuff they have to keep track of. So for instance, having an extra set of textbooks at home or having fewer kinds of papers for them to keep track of, that's helpful. I think using technology in the classroom can also be good. And again, it has to be a thoughtful teacher because that can also make things more complicated. Um, I think also giving them kind of tutorial support in how to approach different kinds of tasks. Is that number four? Did I <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and you don't have to uh, stay with the five. It's, you can go um, beyond that, too, but that's, that's number four. That is correct. And, that was number four. And then um, I would say, you know, empathy and individualization, they kind of go together. So sort of, you know, empathizing with this child as a way of, and using that as a way of individualizing what he needs. So, um, yeah, I think... I think those are probably the, the things that I would say um, within the school situation. Mm-hmm. Um, at home, I'd probably start with empathy at the top of the list because right. I think that that's just something that a parent just has to really be able to say, okay, I, just, I, I have to learn to live with this child who I love dearly who may not be exactly like me or maybe too much like me. Um, I also think that keeping the home life as organized as possible is helpful. I'm keeping things, you know, the same every day, hard to do and hard for everybody to do. Structure. Um, they need I, structure, I think, right? That's kind of what I'm hearing sure. with that structure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, like just this is how we get ready for the school day every day. It's going to be the same time, same, this is how we do homework. Um I also think, and you you remarked earlier about I'm a fast talker, I think changing the way you talk to your child is important, Mm -hmm. being cognizant of how much you give them at one particular time is really important. And especially if you're the parent who may be faster than the slower processing speed child, and making sure that they understand then what it is you've asked of them to do. And then I think, um, you know, just being aware of time in general, it, it just like because these kids don't always have a great sense of time. They don't have a great sense of how long it's going to take them to get something done. They oftentimes underestimate, ironically. And so I think being keeping them aware constantly of we have this much time. It's five minutes till dinner time. Now you have you know forty five minutes for homework. I think that is a really good marker for them. And then I think also just learning to. Be, you know, having them watch you be an advocate for them, I think, is important too. And being able to balance as a parent, advocating for them while not just cutting them too much slack. And that's a tough spot to be in. But I think if they can see you um, talk about them in a way that supports them while holding them still to a, a high standard, I think is is a good thing for kids to, to watch. I think that modeling helps them be able to model and, I mean, to be able to advocate and for themselves eventually. Yeah, great points. You know, I, I was thinking about something as you were talking about the fast-talking the fast talking parent who may take this and think, oh, so I have a child with a processing speed problem. So you want to be <laughs> not be demeaning to your child. Now we are going to right. the park. You know, you don't... Right. 
You don't want to be put into that. And what I mean that by that is, spot, is yeah. here's the, the fast-speaking parent would be, we're going to the park, go get your, go get your shoes. Right. I'm going to meet you right. in the car, and we're going to stop for ice cream on the way. So don't forget, you know, like <laughs> that, that sort of fast speed. Not, it's more right. like we're going to the <laughs> right. park. What right. Do you Sometimes mean? with they, with the comedians yeah. that yeah. talk about like talking to people in a foreign language, you know, like That's we right. are yeah. now at the ball game. And then yeah. I want to put in the last point which you have in here. Uh, you, uh, you could also elaborate on. You talk about, and I talk about this a lot. I think reducing, if you can, these kids can pull for irritation, as we talked about in the first interview, for lots of reasons. So trying to keep a little bit of a lid on the yelling that goes on from a parent oh. point of view. Yes, I didn't bring that up, and that's a very good point, because what happens with these kids, and it's so easy to yell. I mean, it's yep. just so yeah, easy to get frustrated. <laughs> right. And But what happens is eventually it slows them down. It makes them anxious. It's Yelling is just overwhelming because you've got the emotional component. They're trying to process what's going on with my mom or dad. Why are they doing this? And um, and they're usually talking fast and throwing a lot of things at them. It's the wrong thing to do. Parents do it all the time. But I think being aware of when that happens is so important. And I think that's where that acceptance comes into place. Sort of like, okay, I'm not going to yell right now. He can't help it. We're going to figure out how to fix it. And um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, Ellen, Ellen, Dr. Bratton's been a great guest through the, through the two interviews. I'm just going to give the parents just a little taste of of uh, the, what's in her, her book, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up. You have chapters um, such as, if my kid is so smart, why is he so slow? Or chapter two, my child doesn't seem to be able to keep up. Now what do I do? or another chapter. So what exactly is processing speed? And then, and then you have other chapters such as processing speed in the family, processing speed at home and in the classroom and in, with social relationships and pulling it all together. So both of her books, Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up and Straight Talk About Psychological Testing for Kids are really great down-to-earth guides. I will be recommending them a lot. And um, once again... Um, Ellen, please give people a little bit of a sense of, of how to get a hold of you and, um, you know, your program. Um, so the best thing to do if you want more information about our program is to look at mgh.org website and um, look at the LEAP program within that, L-E-A-P. And there's also another website, um, pathstodream.org, which talks about um, some, there are resources for parents on there as well, blogs that uh, colleagues and I have written. And, um, yeah, those are probably the two best ways of, of getting more information. Well, I've really enjoyed meeting you, and I look forward to maybe one day when I get up to visit my daughter up there in Cambridge area, you know, we can share a glass of wine or something and talk about these issues further. I think we're very I think that's spirits. great. That sounds so, like a terrific uh, plan. Yeah, so thank you very much for being on the show for two, two segments. Um, I want to invite people to uh, visit my website, shutdown, www.shutdownlearner.com, as well as thecoffeeclutch.com. And thanks for listening, and thanks again to Dr. Bratton, and take care. Thank you. Ellen? Ellen?